It's Monday, and we've got a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. Tonight is an old tent revival as we're finding God here on GP Radio. Praise, well, something. Uh, tonight we're discussing Preacher, the latest comic series to be turned into a television show. So we have brought together a roundtable to discuss some fans of the comic series, some folks who've only seen the show and are recent converts to the comic series. Uh, so we've got two guests, but before I introduce them, I want to welcome my co-host, Alana. How you doing? Hey, glad, glad to be back. I, I'm glad that we held off last week because I don't think I would have been able to participate on anything last week. But um, I guess just saying for my own credentials, I read the first trade paperback of Preacher back when I was in high school, and I didn't like it. Um, and I like the show, and that's the perspective I'm coming in with. So I'm glad we've got a range of different people to here to talk about it. Yeah, this is uh, is going to be fun. We've basically running the spectrum as far as people uh, who are familiar with the series. Uh, for those who don't know, Preacher, I would call it a modern classic. It's one of the the um, series that really kind of. Uh, taken off and found a new life of its own. Uh, a series by Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon uh, came out in the 90s from Vertigo, which is an imprint of DC Comics. Uh, it follows uh, Jesse Custer, who is a preacher that basically is infused with the voice of God, uh, and he's joined by his uh, friend Tulip and uh, Cassidy, an Irish vampire. It's pretty crazy. Ran 60-something issues, I think 66 issues, if I remember right. Um, collected, definitely should check it out. Uh, but we've got two people to discuss it with us. First is Sarah Rasher, who's forced all her friends to read Preacher, as uh, I did myself in college, and so did I. Uh, I was looking forward to making them all watch the TV show now. She's a PhD in Shakespeare, but now devotes her days to proving that education works and her evenings to blogging about figure skating. You can follow her on Twitter, and we'll be tweeting up her uh, her uh, ID so you can uh, catch her there. Our second person is Kaylin is also another contributor to Graphic Policy. She's also our site's lawyer. Thankfully, we haven't had to use those uh, talents yet. Uh, <laughs> she's here to help provide Texan perspective on the show. Welcome both uh, to the show. Uh, welcome, Sarah. First to you. H- how are you doing? Hi, thanks. I'm good. Um, I actually, in the hour before this, um, before the podcast, I reread the first trade paperback of Preacher and saw that it actually has very little to do with what they ended up putting on screen, which is cool. But so I'm coming from that perspective, too, where I actually have some memory of what's going on in the comics. So when you, you said you read the first paperback because, or trade paperback, because this actually has brought up some issues uh, from when I'm digging online. Is it book one or volume one? Because book one's got like the first 12 issues and volume one's got the first six. Uh, volume one, but it's like, it's hard to say because I've had these trade paperbacks for such a long time that, um, it says book one on it, but I wonder if they've been renumbered since I got them. Hmm. This has actually been a big deal. No, no, no. This has been a big deal. If you go to Amazon, people are like, have flipped out because they've ordered uh, book one, book two, and then volume three, which also includes is included in book two. So very confusing for folks. And uh, 
Yeah, unfortunately, I need to repurchase. Mine um, got destroyed in college because that's what you do in college to trade paperbacks. Uh, the, the other person to welcome is Kaylin. How you doing? Doing good. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, so for you, you you came first to the, the television show and then read the comics. Yes. So my first introduction was through you, uh, the television show. And then uh, very recently, I think it was yesterday, you tossed me book one of the, the trade paperback. And I'm about halfway through that. But uh, I, like Sarah, was very interested to see what they changed and what they left out from the comics to the show, since the show was my first introduction. And right now, I think I'm liking the show a little bit more. It's just a little bit more interesting to me. You know, I'm only halfway through the first the first book, as it were. So we'll see if that changes. All right. That's fascinating, because I'm the exact opposite. Um, oh. So... Yeah, so with you two, like, what do you think of the, the between the difference between the show and uh, the the comic series? Well, I guess we'll start with Sarah first. Well, I want to say first of all that my other recollection is that book one is a is a little slow and has a feeling of the the writer and the artist really trying to find their feet and figure out the tone of it. So it doesn't really get great until about 12 issues in. So with that in mind, um, and a lot has been really made of the differences in sort of the appearances of the characters and especially of changing Tulip's race, which is almost just Ruth Mega is such a wonderful actress that she just, she found something in that character that that is beyond what's on the page, which is really amazing. Mm-hmm. But what I was amazed with is how much they really streamlined in terms of the antagonists. Because in the comics, the angels are separate from the, um, the, oh, what's he called? The, I've already forgot his name, but the, the, sort of angel of death figure. Um, the saint of killers. The saint of killers, thank you. Um, that, they're, that they're separate entities. And in the TV show, it seems like they've sort of combined them. And sort of the most interesting qualities of both. Jesse is not talking to John Wayne. Like, a lot of the things that seem kind of labored and, like, trying too hard to be a Western they've streamlined out in the show. And I think that that's the thing that's actually holding it together the most. You know, I mean, for me, like I having only read the first trade paperback and then not liking it, like I, my complaints with the first trade paperback were, were that I felt that the comic was really patting itself on the back for being, uh, so challenging of the dominant conversations around religion. And yet to me coming at it as like someone who grew up in a not particularly religious part of the country, it all sort of felt like it was just sort of poking the eye of a thing that was already dead. I was like, yeah, but who's like that anyway? Like, why are we making fun of Hicks? They have it bad. Like my childhood, like, like uh, interaction with it was feeling like, it was making fun of people who were helpless and broken and like telling me to, to like look down on people who had nothing but religion in their lives. And I just, 
I, I didn't just feel like it had any kindness or generosity at all, which is, of course, you know, that's not what people go to Garth Ennis for. I just didn't think it was very funny, with the exception of one thing, which I will hit on later. But with the show, it's completely different, because the show, is, the show is sort of like a prequel to the comic. The show is showing you Jesse actually doing the preacher thing, and in the process, it humanizes all of these different characters, like, you know, for better or worse. And I think it's more interesting than just making fun of the yokels. And, and part of me is just like, you know, I would love to hear from Kaylin as like a Texan, but like, because like Lord knows that is not my experience, but like, you know, here you have these like people from, you know, United Kingdom and they're just like making fun of kind of powerless people with shitty lives in Texas. Like if you want to take out the church, like why don't you do something about what's happening in your own country? Um, and I, you know, I don't know how much, people who haven't really done cultural work or time in America are going to have to say about Texas. Cause I don't think I have that much informed information to share about Texas. It's big enough to be its own damn country. So, you know, it was interesting to me that the show has so many, like Helen really has one American in the creative team. It's got Canadians and like people from England and whatnot. And the, the talent is actually like all from the United Kingdom too, but God, they're so fucking good. The actors are wonderful. Um, but, you know, those are some of the problems that I had with, with the comic when I read it. And, 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 you know, while I have questions about what kind of portrayal the show is going to have of a place that I know very little about, um, I do think it's off to a better start because it's treating the characters like people. And it's still funny. Like, it's still over-the-top violent and funny. You can do that without, like, insulting people who are, like, not exactly empowered people. And it's interesting that you said that because it never came off to me as a as a comic book that was about making fun of those characters. It felt always to me like it was making fun of the people who make fun of them. Huh. Like it was sort of daring you to respond to them in the obvious way, and maybe that comes across more in the later issues and the later sections mm. of it. Yeah. And I can well see be. how, like, giving up with book one, like, you, you would be able to walk away from that, but I never did. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, for yeah, me... With I the, totally get how that might change later. Yeah, I mean, the, the series definitely evolves over time. The, the first volume is... The way I describe it is the first volume to me is, like, a Tarantino film. It's the scene of Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson sitting down at the, at the um, diner reflecting on what happened and then kind of goes to the past. And then, you know, once it catches up, then you start going into the actual, um, you know, the, the thrust, the, like the main body of the story, um, mm-hmm. which it, to me is just a very different presentation. Cause obviously the, the, the television show isn't doing that at all. Um, which I mean, to me, like for when it came out with that perspective, like it really was an Tarantino, no film done in comics, which wasn't really hadn't been done at that point in comics. That wasn't a common thing for the most part. It was just kind of taking off in a lot of the indie stuff. But for like a big comic book series that was still fairly new, so that, I know that that had a huge impact on me. And as far as like I had a screw up, screwed up vision of what the hell the South was and Texas was in general. I mean, my perspective was uh, Bad News Bears, Breaking Training was or back in training was Texas and smoking the bandit was my view of the South. Uh-huh. So I, yeah, just, exactly. I didn't have a normal perspective to begin with. 
I don't think it's abnormal. Like we didn't have good cultural representations of these other parts of the country to look at. Like, so yeah, Kaylin, <laughs> how do you think the show is, how do you think the show is portraying Texas? So I actually like a lot of what the show is doing and it's, it's funny, the sort of different perspectives on how it's treating religion. Um, so the show, the show I think is actually doing something a lot more interesting than what I know of the comic so far. Um, because a lot of my perspective of things, and I, I will put this out here, I, I grew up in Texas in various small towns. Uh, the Christian, Protestant Christian specifically, um, was my surrounding backdrop for pretty much my entire life. Uh, mm-hmm. I did attend church very regularly until about the age of 14 and my family moved and we, we dropped off as, as regular churchgoers. But um, I mean, it's, it's enough to the point where I've, I was telling Brett as we were watching the episode last night uh, as they had the, the cold opener with Jesse's dad doing the, the, the opening at the beginning and he's standing in front of the entire congregation and he looks at the congregation and says, peace be with you. And it is such an automatic reaction that as the congregation was saying it, I realized I was also responding and also with you. Like mm-hmm. it, it just came out of my mouth. There it was along with everybody else on screen. So it's that kind of infused nature that, that I grew up with. And that's a lot of what, they're getting a lot more like the exploration of religion in the comic wasn't an exploration of it. It was just straight up like tropes of, Oh, you know, it's like, we're going to make fun of God in the way that you've seen a billion times before. Whereas I feel like the show is actually doing something a little more interesting. Like, Oh, there's this entity out there that has the voice of God. What's an interesting way to explore what would happen with that in a character that really wants to do good, uh, that thinks, oh, I have this this power now, and this is something where I can make things better in the way I want them to be better, and not just necessarily a straightforward challenge to God or something contrary, which I feel like has been done a lot before. So yeah, they're, for they're real. Using, yeah, they're using a lot of the, the sort of used background of religion in the show in a way that makes it a lot more interesting to someone who grew up with it. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I appreciate that a lot. Like I really just, I've been trying to find voices who can talk authentically about things that are reflected in the show because it's, like it's so far beyond my life experience or anything I've really visited even. And it seems to be that that's outside the experience of any of the people creating it. So um, I'm not sure how they quite get there, but it's good to hear that they, that they are. You know, one of the things that I really thought was interesting was how in the opening sequence, you really see like that it came from outer space, so to speak. Um, and a certain amount of the theological wording, I think, is coming from the characters rather than, like, the voice of the narrator saying it's actually happening a certain way. 
like, are they angels? Like, they, I don't know if they call themselves angels until Cassidy says that they're angels, right? Well, I don't even think Cassidy says that they're angels. He says you're from, he asked, are you from heaven? And they said, yes. And he says, so you're angels. And they don't, I don't think they really answer the question. I think when pressed, they sort of are like, well, yeah, that, like, that'll work. They're not, though. In the in the comic, they're not. That's the, the, to me. I think them hesitating actually fits the comics because that's part of the story. In that, there was it Ser- Serif. I think was the Adelphi. Yeah, the Adelphi. That's it. So they aren't angels. They're just like guys who literally do the paperwork. Like that's their entire job in the story. Oh, and then I there's thought, the angels. I thought they were a class of angels. I thought they were a the Adelphi of or yeah. Yeah, I'm with Sarah. The Adelphi are a class of angels along with the Seraphim. They have a different role yeah. in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I messed that up. <laughs> I'm okay, outvoted three to, to one, out. so I lose. I know. Men don't really know a lot about comics, so we're just here to... JK. I'm also um, a heathen. <laughs> I'm complete heathen. That's true. I know. So, yeah, um... Like, but I think it is sort of trying to leave it open, like, is it what it seems to be, like, you know, you can kind of come up with different justifications for for things that happen in it. Like whether it's a science fiction on a certain level. Uh, to me, the opening, actually the most interesting about the opening is how, like, degraded it is. Like, it's really done poorly and goofy in the special effects. Like, it looks like a uh-huh. model going behind you know, uh, someone paper mache like you would do as a kid. And to me, that just, it adds to the tone. There's something like hilarious about it and really, really entertaining. Like out of everything, that's the most striking thing that they went that route as opposed Mm -hmm. to spending their budget on this. And there was actually, because when I watched the first episode, there were these little cuts where they were doing bits of commentary from, the showrunners and they were saying that that was a very deliberate choice and that they were really recalling some of the sci-fi that they grew up on. And there was this decision like, well, we could spend a lot of budget trying to make this look really good, but we don't really have the budget for it. So let's just make it really hokey and really referential and Mm -hmm. set up that, you know, set up that tone from the first visual image in the entire thing. It's also a very British thing to do, which I find really interesting given who's involved in this. It's so British to just be like, nope, we're going to make it super hokey sci-fi and go with it. Oh, I see what you mean, like a Doctor Who thing. I, you know, I, I like, I love the aesthetic on that. I I think there's a lot of things the show is doing deliberately, like, you know, playing with genre uh, expectations in really funny ways. Like, I love how the, the, uh, the credit sequence Oh, for the record, listeners, this is going to be 100% spoilers of, like, the, the past episodes of the show and all that. So, anyway, um, the uh, – although, are we going to do full spoilers of the comics? Like, let me know what you guys – Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with spoilers. I mean, it, you know, okay. to me, the, the, the comic is relevant for the most part of the first, the first um, arc, which kind of, like, mirrors it slightly – and then afterwards, okay. you know, I don't okay. think we need to get in too much because it just isn't super relevant okay. for the most part. Sounds good. So, also, um, 20-year-old spoilers. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it was Earth all along. But the this isn't quite the internet didn't exist then. Yeah. They could be 
people might not know. Anyhow, um, so the, the the credit sequence for the most recent episode, which is like totally a pastiche of the credit sequence of True Blood and the credit sequence of uh, True Detective season one, like it down to like having the film frames burn in the projector in the last moment of the sequence, like it and you know having it be like yeah look at these sex workers and these drugs and people being bad and things are burning and shrubbery. And I was just cracking up at how funny it was <laughs> um, for poking fun at, at, you know, those shows self-importance around that. The credit sequences have all been excellent. And actually the production design is excellent too. I, I love the usage of the, the font that I didn't even realize that the font of the preacher comic was so iconic until I saw it used in the show and I was like, yeah, I fucking know that font. Um, I, I'm really impressed with the production design. Yeah, it's it's up there. I'm like, I I think the look of the show is fantastic. Like, it's it's very much its own thing, and you know, it feels like it should be small town Texas. Like that, it actually is there, and it's not some studio lot. Um, uh-huh. the doors I think are fantastic and how they're done up the, the action and the blood and the violence is, you know, boy, that borderline over the top humorous, um, like Tarantino where it just goes slightly over that line and you can't take it serious anymore. Um, the, like, it's, it's done really, really well all in that, in that department. It's, it's interesting where I'm just, I'm coming, I'm finally hitting that grip you know, coming to the grip at like whatever fourth episode where it's, I'm really accepted that it's its own thing and it's going with its own tone and, you know, the characters are deviating and how it's telling the story is different, which is just, just threw me a lot for the first couple of episodes. Um, the, mm. the one thing I do like about the comic and that the comic starts with basically the church blowing up and then him retelling what the hell happened to Tulip and Cassidy I just like that way of telling the story more so than they're drawing it out. But then again, they're doing that part of the story over how many episodes this is, as opposed to diving to that and the Saint of Killers and all these other things like right away. It's just, it's different and it's more uh, decompressed than I think the comic is, which is what I like, I'm finally realizing and kind of cool with it's, it's, it's different and it's still like really good. I, I think the, the heart of the comic the tone of the comic, the look of it, like it really has all that down really well. And, and I think by showing you his time as a preacher, it gives you a sense to like look at these characters as human beings. So your comment on the production design, um, I'm right there with you. Like I love a lot of the stuff that they've done with it. And I love that they're doing location shoots more than uh-huh. a studio lot. Uh, sometimes it throws me a little bit, but only because I've actually lived some of my life in West Texas and having family out there, uh, you know, going back to visit semi-regularly, much less lately than earlier in my life. But uh, there's a couple things every once in a while that throw me where I'm like, those two areas would not exist next to each other. You can't put a place like that. Um so the the location where the church is uh that looks uh-huh. very looks very west texas it feels it feels right like it feels like a small town in west texas in kind of the middle of nowhere and then 
the location that they used for the most recent episode where they had the um, hunt, shall we call it. I don't know what else to call it, but we'll call it the hunt. Um, Those two locations would not exist near each other. Uh, (laughs) So that threw me a little bit. I was like, wait a second. You have trees and you have actual grass and these things would not be around that area, like where the church is, where there's scrub. It just wouldn't happen. But at the same time, I do like that they actually use... Now, granted, they film in New Mexico and not in West Texas, but a lot of it looks very similar. So I I do like that they use location shoots. It actually helps the feel of it a lot. I mean, that whole sequence is so much staged, like a horror movie. And I think, like, we almost don't know how to tell a generic, cause that's, and that's what they're sending up in the opening sequence of episode four with the hunt. I don't think we quite know how to visually tell that story in a tropey sort of way without it having trees, because that's, that's where all those horror movies are set in the woods. I guess like only Texas Chainsaw Massacre, maybe that could be some maybe referencing instead. So I take that back. But no, it's interesting to to see that. Like, I mean, the town does the town itself look to the extent we've seen it. Does it look okay? Yeah, the the town looks pretty good. We haven't seen much of. We haven't seen much of it. I think the most exterior shots of the town we had were. In the beginning of that one where she's running like around buildings or around a corner, um, we see uh-huh. a lot of the church, the church exterior, which is, like I said, it's it's well done. And a lot of their driving sequences. And I will also commend them on the fact that it, when they're doing this show and it feels like it takes absolutely forever to drive anywhere because that is ridiculously accurate. <laughs> <laughs> When it feels like it takes you 20 minutes to get to your best friend's house and they're not even that far away and you're like, why am I still driving? What is happening? Yeah, that's pretty accurate when it feels like it takes forever to get anywhere. But no, the Hmm. look, I think they've got the look of it down really well. There's There's a few other small town aspects that I rant about every so often that just don't make sense, but they have to do it for story purposes, I get. So I, I let it slide. What, what, what is that? So the thing that I was commenting on, I guess it was last night, mm-hmm. um, was in a town that is this small, where it seems that they have one church, maybe two, but really, you know, we're focusing on one that a town this small, everybody knows everybody else's business all the time. And so like Cassidy goes out and he gets a bunch of money and he buys drugs and hookers and, you know, has a grand old time with it. And nobody's questioning where this guy came from. And these two British guys show up in town and they're staying in the hotel, um, which, you know, is sizable enough to have a hotel. So it's not tiny, but also not very big. And there isn't this massive question going around town by everybody of who are these guys? 
has has no one cornered them in the grocery store or somewhere trying to get their life story because that would actually be much more accurate if people had flooded you know the the hotel owner trying to get their story or cornered them somewhere trying to get their story and who are they and why are they there because clearly they're not from there i mean they have those accents they're definitely not from around there so there's just a lot of that small town aspect of there aren't enough questions asked of like everybody would be all up in everybody's business all the time. And they would be, they would either know what's going on or be trying to know what's going on just because that would actually be the most entertainment that town has ever seen in anyone's entire life. And so everybody would be trying to know what's happening. Well, well, and, well they're, they're too busy beating up the groundhog mascot for not being adequately racist. So they have, they have other things on their mind. Well, that's, I mean, that beating up the groundhog mascot for not being adequately racist is, you know, the normal Friday night activity. If all of a sudden two British guys show up in town, that's how you fill your Saturday and your Sunday afternoon after church. Because you go to church, you meet with everybody, then you go to the nearest diner for lunch, and then everybody talks about everything that they learned that week so that everybody can be caught up on the latest gossip and know what to ask questions for the next week as they continually run into each other in the grocery store and picking up the kids from school and seeing each other in walks around town and running to the corner to buy milk and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I do want to ask sort of like, I mean, we know from even in like Washington, D.C., like the persistent insistence of the owners of the Washington racial slurs football team, like refusing to change the freaking team name. Like, this is obviously, like, yeah, that would be a point of conflict in in a small town, especially. Like, but doesn't it's, – it's, but the idea that there'd be, like, a fist fight, like, beating up the mascot, like, that's, that's some over-the-top, right? Yes, that's over-the-top because I would also know perfectly well that the poor mascot, him or herself, usually himself, would have absolutely nothing to do with it. To and so they it. wouldn't – Yeah. Right. I I will commend them though. Mm -hmm. Right, they did they did get it right with um, oh why am I blanking on his name, the guy who had to squeal like a bunny in a bear trap, um totally blanking on his name right now. What Donnie? Donnie sounds right. I'll go with Donnie. Maybe good from the abusive asshole. We we know who we mean. Okay. Um. he and his wife will say it's not abusive. She likes it. Uh, she asked for it, which is a whole nother interesting aspect of things. But anyway, they did get it right. Like even the kids were taunting him and that's how a small town would be. Like even the kids would know this story. They clearly weren't there. It was a bar. It was late at night. Um, so like the kids weren't around, but they would have heard the story and they would have heard their parents telling the story and they would have heard, you know, their moms on the phones with other moms telling the story and their dads joking about it with the other guys down the street. Like the whole town knows that entire story and that's how a small town would be. So they got that aspect right. I wish it showed up with a few more other things, but I totally understand why they can't just for storytelling purposes. This can't be Friday Night Lights. Because when I was listening to you describe where those disconnects are coming and I was sitting there going, what's the other big pop culture Texas frame of reference that we have recently? And it's that. And it seems to be either not cognizant of that frame of reference or purposely avoiding it. Um, 
uh, <laughs> that it's like small town Texas, but we're not doing that at all. Do you, right, you and I... Of, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, that's, it's really true. They're, I think they're doing a lot of purposeful avoiding of it. And I like Friday Night Lights, the television show, I watched about the first three episodes and I was like, this show is fantastic and I cannot watch it because it hits so close to home. Like I knew all of those people. I went to high school with those people. I was around, all, like it was too close to home. I couldn't watch it. It was just, it was too much you know, everything that I knew. Um, so I think they are purposely avoiding that aspect of it, which is, it's fine. It would just, it would complicate the story too much, I think. So yeah, they, they have to, they have to only concentrate on one thing at a time. And I totally get it. What do you guys make of that? Like, how are we supposed to interpret the relationship between that man and his wife because we know that the kid is being abused or else the kid wouldn't be saying the kid's being abused and I loved the touch of having the preachers try to talk to the chief of police and the chief of police re- you know, explaining why in reality women don't come forward and like they don't feel comfortable issuing a complaint they're not going to be taken seriously or they don't feel like this is a situation where they can go to a person they, in, who is in the position of authority etc like the cop mishandling that entire interaction was perfect because that's how shit is. But I, I am really confused about how we're supposed to interpret the relationship between that guy and his wife since we do know he is abusive to his son on some level. I I don't, like, it's one that I keep on going back and forth. Like, I don't know if it really is, like, a BDSM thing that's going on or if he's, like, really abusive. I, I absolutely have no idea story-wise I can see it actually being more the BDSM type thing because uh-huh. I can see a sto- like part of the the series going down the line and Tulip doing something to that guy cuz clearly she's got, you know, as she should, like issues with those types of assholes. We saw this that in this episode and um and she doesn't take shit and see her doing something to that guy and it being a mistake where, no, it really was them, you know, playing, you know, this is just how they, they, you know, get their, do their thing. Um, but I, I actually have no idea. I'm, I wanted to ask like every single one of you, cause I, I don't know. I really don't know. I feel like it's one of many things in the show, at least so far that sort of representing moral paradoxes where it's like if he is harming his son through this, if he is probably going through far, too far and despite it being on some level consensual BDSM possibly harming her nonetheless, like how do we respond to that? Do we just say, you know, well, to each their own, or do we say, you know, there's a line at which even things that are consensual are harmful and need to be intervened with? And I feel like um, we see that a lot in Tulip's behavior and Cassidy's behavior. Um, and, you know, you think with Cassidy, who he's lovable on a certain level, but at the same time, he's drinking blood. 
um, and that that's a, a moral quandary that a lot of representations of vampires kind of swerved from in various ways, and that uh-huh. it's actually dealing with that question. And it also kind of goes to Jesse and why, and this is another thing that's different, as I recall, between the TV show and the comics, that there are several attempts to possess um, preachers who are more righteous and more convinced of their cause than he is, but for some reason, um, the the entity that is that is not called Genesis um, is able to coexist with him. And there's more and more suggestion that it has something to do with him being some kind of balance between good and evil. Um, and the fact that for all of his inability to really be the kind of person that a preacher should be, that he's really good at this sort of counseling part of it and the kindness and supporting the community part of it. Um, and that he's that he's good to those people and that he really does his best, even though he's really a giant mess. So, That's yeah, so I think that, that that couple is kind of, um, it's it's part of a pattern that is probably going to get stronger and stronger as we see more of this universe. I mean, it's hard for me to see, like, how a show with this current tone and with these sort of relationships between people could become a show in which um, the teenage boy who had uh, shot himself in the face gets called Arse Face. Like, that's just, like, laughed at throughout the book basically and I don't see like with his kind of ministry and like his relationship with the kid like and with the characters as they are on the show I can't imagine the story coming to a place where everybody's like ha 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 our space you know except that I don't think that that's how it works in the book either but um uh mm. that, that that character becomes tremendously sympathetic as, as it goes along, I mean, he starts pretty sympathetic, I think, too, but and gets more and more sympathetic, and that name is painful because he's such a sympathetic character. So it's again going back to things that sort of emerge as the as the comic series goes on. We should talk a little bit about the whole vampire piece of this. Um, I, I, for one, think that Joe Gilgan is amazing as Cassidy. Uh, he, he's got like a rubber face, I think is the term they used to use in um, slapstick comedy. Like he can just sort of contort his features into the most like over-exaggerated mugging faces. And frequently that kind of thing is really not sure it's really irritating but he's amazing and it completely works I don't know if it's like he's a cartoon and it's so it's not irritating it's funny or if it's just that he's that freaking good of an actor but I love this like it's like yeah he's kind of like Warner Brothers visually um representation of a vampire and 
like, you know, I, I love how he calls out on the airplane the vampire hunters for, like, just treating him like he's just uh, – like what is like a you know like a like a drunken Irish stereotype and he's like <laughs> like he laughs at them to laugh at he laughs at himself to laugh at them, um, uh, and and they do such a wonderful job with just having him be completely disgustingly covered in blood and like all you will see are these like bright eyes staring out at you and it's very much um, at odds with the you know the standard depictions that you have in a lot of media but I think that when the series first came out like this stand-up of a vampire they were doing was, like, even more... I mean, because Twilight is so bad, there have been so many people poking holes at, like, vampires for being ridiculous the past decade, I guess. I felt like when I read read the comics, the thing that I liked, actually, was I really liked the scene where Cassidy is interacting with vampire fans in New Orleans and, the like, the contrast between the fans in the comic and like him as an actual vampire and what it's actually like for him being, you know, disgusting and dirty basically. Um, but I, I thought that like the show, you know, it, you don't see him drinking, you don't see him drinking blood from like random people is the thing. And it's going to be curious if it ends up going to that part. Cause like, you know, we see him drinking blood from people who are trying to attack him or like from a blood bank, basically. He hasn't really, he hasn't really broken our trust that much yet. So he still sort of is like this lovable anarchic presence. Um, I don't know if he'll stay that way. And, and I just think they do a great job with him represent, representing it visually, like how unnerving it is and also funny and also bizarre. I, and I think the act is fantastic. So my experience with the, the particular actor has been on uh, the British television show Misfits. Um, ah. I, so I, I watch random British television shows and I picked this one up on Hulu a while ago and he shows up in the later seasons of the show Misfits. And when I first saw the thing, I was like, no, he's going to be great. And then I realized his character in this is a lot like his particular character in Misfits where the complete ass. He's a jerk to everybody. He does really gross things. And but but Sal still manages to make it kind of weirdly almost charming in a way. You're like, no, you're a complete ass, and I show you. But some part of me still kind of maybe likes you or finds you entertaining enough to keep around. And, and that's the current appeal of Cassidy as he stands right now. Like he does uh-huh. seem to have, like you said, his own world code. He he only feeds off people who are attacking him or, you know, hurting other people that he cares about or he's in blood bank. Uh, which I'm kind of glad to see because I was like, he's just been stabbed by Tulip. Like, he's going to have to do something. What's going to happen here? And then we off his blood bank. And I was like, oh, okay, like he actually has some sort of survival code that he's going by here making it this long in society with a second again. But you're right, like actor, there's something about his face and the way he manages to pull this off where he's completely goofy and a complete jerk and you're like, it just came out. But at the same time, would they really? I don't know. But yeah, his features, everything about him, 
really similar to, I think, the character he was playing in Misfit. So I love the casting on this one because I think he's he's got the idea of this character completely down. And I'm really interested to see where they end up going with him and the vampire mythology because there's some some good places that they could that they could take that, especially in contrast to sort of Jesse right now where he's trying to go a little more moral than he has been in the past. So it's it's kind of like this 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 guy who's been around for hundreds of years and has developed his own moral code is now standing there for a guy who's going to have to develop his own moral code with another different kind of superpower. And it could potentially be really interesting. Well, I also want to mention that my favorite thing in the show probably is Tulip. I, I was not into Tulip in uh, the comic. I, and I think it might've partially been the art. She kind of looked like a wet cat to me in a way that, didn't make me want to dry her off, but instead made me want to have her continue to drown. Um, but uh, it's just sort of sad. I don't know. I think it was probably the art more than the text. But um, but Ruth Nega in the show is amazing. She's completely magnetic. She has amazing energy, and I could just watch her watch paint dry. She's so just magnetic as an actress in this. And obviously the introduction scene we get with her is outstanding because who's not going to fall in love with a character who can make a bazooka full of army men out of soup cans. Like that is the sort of thing that will automatically endear you to an audience with TV watchers. But I, I think that her performance itself is just completely star material and she better be getting cast in everything after this. And what I like about Tulip in the show that isn't as strongly drawn in the comics, and it sets her apart from a lot of similar female characters in TV and movies, is that there's something really, like, unapologetically feminine about her, where she really uses it, but not in a sort of crass way but in that sort of like when she's dealing with the cop that pulls her over and she like basically like cries at him until he lets her off and I'm like and I love that she's not going to cry <laughs> sorry and I love that she said I'm not going to cry and it's like I'm going to do she's going to do everything but cry it'll be even more powerful than if she had cried Right. That it's like she knows that her being this, basically this tiny little black woman is something that she, that, that it is a source of power if she knows how to use it. And she's spent her life becoming an expert at turning that disadvantage into a total advantage where people don't imagine that she's capable of what she's capable of. Um, and I feel like frequently when you see a like a badass woman in TV and film, that there's this desire to file all that down and remove all that and, and to see a character who takes pleasure in sort of exploiting her own weakness. To, to get things out of other people and to get things out of Jesse all the time um, is it brings her to life in a way 
that is kind of a relief to me that I was worried that she would be sort of rounded down to that one-dimensional, like, kick-ass lady with no depth to her. And she has so much depth to her. I totally agree with you. I I love, and I've only read, you know, a tiny bit of the comic, but I, I love the show's version of Tulip a lot more. And I was, the thing that I, sort of a question about her that I kind of got answered in this most recent episode was we saw her clearly, I'm, I'm guessing this was clearly her as a kid with Jesse when he got caught smoking outside the church by his dad. And, you know, it's a, a young black girl. I'm guessing it's Tulip because who else could it be in this town? Uh, but so we got the question of, yes, she's been friends with Jesse for what looks like most of their lives. And she made mention of she had grown up in the in the bordello basically of you know mom was upstairs too busy dealing with with all that and so from that perspective of this kid who's grown up in this like it it answered something about her character that I didn't know I was asking but mm. it made a lot of like she's from there she's from this place she's of this place and yet she's still a complete outsider because everything about her, the way she looks, who she is, where she grew up, everything about her would have been a complete outsider to all of the people of this town. Like, oh, you're a black kid. Oh, your mom's a whore. Oh, you grew up in the bordello. Like, you're not of us. You're, you're not part of this town. You're not one of us. She would have been treated like a complete outsider, and yet she took everything about that and was like, no, I know all of you people. I grew up with you people. I lived here, but I'm not, I'm not you. Like, you, I am completely outside of you because you made me that way, and oh. I'm going to turn around and show all of you this mirror now. Like, I'm going to come back here, and you're going to be at this, you know, dead girl's funeral, and I'm going to make faces about everything that you're saying because it's utterly and completely ridiculous. And if it takes me, the outsider who knows you, to hold up this mirror, then fine, I'm going to do it, and I'm really comfortable with that place where I am and who I am and, you know, F all you for it. So I really love that about her that, like, it was a question I didn't know I had, until it got answered, I'm like, oh, well, now it makes so much more sense of, like, of course she can, you know, manipulate Jesse in this way. And, of course, she's this perfect mirror to everybody else around her because she she knows all of this and she knows these people. And yet, because of probably her status through the whole through her whole life, she's this perfect outsider to the whole thing, too. And it's... It's really fantastic, and I'm interested to see if they play off of it anymore. Plus, Ruth Nega just makes the best background faces while people are talking ever, and it's everything that I'm thinking at the same time right along with her. But, you know, it's not just background faces, though. Like, I think that the uh, the scene where uh, Kin Cannon, like, who's the, the boss of the town and the mayor, who's the fake boss of the town and the chief of police, uh, are talking, you know, are exhuming the body of, of Lacey, who who had been, you know, essentially manslaughtered. Um, her faces she makes in that scene are why that scene is okay. 
So I, I apologize. This is going to take me a minute, but like this is this is really important to me. So like basically, almost any story that is going to have sex workers of some kind in it in fiction is going to have them have terrible things happen to them. Like that's what they're written into fiction for the purpose of, and it's really old and not necessarily a story that needs to get recycled all the time because bad things happen to women for all kinds of different reasons. Um, but the show, I think, has been doing something really interesting with how, it's te- how, it's, how it treats, like, the, the prostitutes in the, the, the town brothel. Um, you know, when, when, when Lacey, Lacey, who, like, is the, the woman who is running from the boys who are shooting at her, who, mind you, like, she gets shot in the chest with a paint gun with no protective clothing on. And like, you don't get shot with paint guns without padding on when you go to a paint gun range. That is not how you do paint gun. So the fact that they're doing this hunt without, with the women being like, just not wearing padding is in and of itself horrific. And that this is a normal thing that they do is horrific. Um, But the, you know, so he goes and he shoots her even when she's like, Oh, you caught me. Okay. So this guy's, like chases her into a hole. It's manslaughter. It's fucked up. The chief of police speech that he gives, and he says, "You boys have to watch the roughhousing." Like he just describes it as roughhousing. That's all it is because these are obviously people who have no value to him on the win- on the ladies' front. And then the cop says, "You ladies, if you're going to be out here in the middle of the night, you've got to watch where you're walking," as if that was the problem, as opposed to there's something out there that's causing sinkholes and that like. This is not a safe working condition that they've been that they were like forced to to do in their job right now. You know, I, I none of the sex workers I'm friends with have ever had to run from somebody shooting at them with a paint gun. Horrible things do happen, but this doesn't have to be like the norm for everybody. And when you have this scene go down, you know when like Ruth and Ruth is like I'm sorry, not Ruth the actress. Uh, Tulip is glaring at him when he's like says, "Boys, watch the roughhousing." But when he says, ladies, if you're going to be out here in the middle of the night, like he tries to make it the ladies' fault too, like equally, oh, you're both to blame. The look on Tulip's face is a complete rejection of what he says. And because the camera gives you her explaining to you, like, no, this is not equivalent. You can't make this an equivalent thing. I think it really, like, is an important thing that the show does in establishing that whole dynamic. I mean, and, you know, the madam is, like, terrible. She basically tells the women they need to work for free for an hour, because of a conflict, like because there was a discussion, now the workers have to work for free for an hour. Um, but you know, like the show, the show, the show is great because, like, when when they're, when they're pulling they're, they're pulling Lacey out of the the the, the pit hole in the earth, right? Which I'm sure is going to have all kinds of interesting biblical associations slash environmental associations with massive chasms in the earth. Um, like, you know, it forces you to it, this whole thing could have read like a joke, like comedy or farce, but when you see her body getting pulled out, it is brutal and it is not sexualized. Well, you know, like it would have been really easy and a lot of shows would have made it look like, oh, look at the scantily clad woman, you know, her corpse. It, and the show doesn't do it. Like it's just gory and awful and not sexualized. And I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, during the, during the, during the, the announcement when she's discovered dead, you know, the mayor, like, Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not during the scene. It's when the mayor goes to meet with the boss, Ken Cannon. The mayor like hesitates before calling Lacey a human being when he's when he's trying to make a comparison uh, between earlier mishaps that have happened on Kincaid's land and the severity of what just happened. 
And, you know, and this is the mayor who we've generally seen just kind of be a general doofus so far and harmless and helpless more or less. And I was just like, of course he's going to act like that. Of course that's what he says. Um, and then the final piece I have, before I'll shut up for a little while, uh, about the really portrayal of, of the sex workers on the show is, and this is, this is one instant actually is too missing the point here. Um, when the other sex worker, I, God, I don't remember the name, I don't remember her name, but the woman who's wearing the Texas t-shirt who's doing the uh, memorial service for Lacey, she reads the Bible passage and she says, where no ox, where no ox, where the, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes from the strength of the ox. And like that, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that that's why this particular person chose that parable for the funeral. Like, I think this is why the writers of the show chose this parable for the funeral, but that's sort of like how the rest of the town treats the prostitutes. You know, they are a source of revenue and they are also a source of like social cohesion in the town. Um, and they're important in the town, but they have to be kept over there in that house over there. And they have to be regarded as being not quite people like you. Um, and I just thought that that was deliberate. And I didn't catch the significance of that Bible verse until the second time I watched the episode. So I'll shut up now. Yeah, I, I kind of actually, I want to back up what you said with the with the opening. I, I have to give the show a lot of credit like that whole thing could have been just played for a joke and that was it. And it being Seth Rogen as a producer, I actually have to give him a credit. Like this has been fairly smart and hasn't gone for simple like jokes and just leaving it at that. Like there, there was actually, you know, a lot of layers to that scene and out of the four episodes, that whole beginning and then uh, Tulip's reaction as, you know, they're, they're having discussions with the girls and the, and the workers like like that's it's so layered and so smart and like has a hell of a lot to say like i think that scene might have had more to say than a good chunk of the the comic series itself um mm-hmm. and you know i i you know where credit where credit is due like seth rogan really you know one of the producers really put together something that is it's winding up something more than the the parts that it, it that it's made up of like it's it's he's doing they're doing some really great things um and not just making it uh like an over-the-top slap stick you know joke of a show that that's not taking anything serious and all about just you know blood and guts and horrible things happening Any other thoughts on that? I've been really trying to find some perspective from somebody who, like, is a sex worker who's to write about, who's written about the show, and I haven't seen anything. But I actually haven't seen that many people really talking about the show at detail yet at all. Um, but if any of our listeners catch anything from that perspective, I would really love to hear someone talk about it because I also am sort of like, yeah, do we have to constantly have terrible things happening to prostitutes on everything, on every media at all times? But then I also was impressed with how this was done. So I would love to have somebody who's closer to the subject than me. Tell me what they think. Um, yeah. Want I, I yeah, I'm also sort of curious about, because um, it, does, it does feel sometimes like a very, very white show. Mm-hmm. And I 
and I wasn't as aware of it in the first couple episodes, and the other thing that I've been watching a lot of is Orange is the New Black, and that makes everything look like a very white show. But um, <laughs> but uh, that just, I sort of, it's also strange to me to look at it and be like, are there no Latino people in this in in this imaginary Texas, like it just seems very like it's trying to say things about race with tulip, but you can't do all of that heavy lifting when your entire cast is white beyond that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's something that any show. That is that is looking at morality and looking at sort of the collision of small town America with with, with outside concerns um, and bigger issues. That it's one of those things that I hope they don't decide is beyond their beyond their scope, and that they actually reflect on at some point because it is feeling kind of like Tulip is the only representative of anything that that isn't this very particular type of white culture that seems mm-hmm. to me to be unrealistic. It's actually it is, incredibly yeah. unrealistic, especially if we're talking about Western Texas, uh, more accurately about 50% or more of the town would actually be Latino or Hispanic. Um, So it's definitely not accurate to the United States as it currently is. I'm, you know, depending on whatever fictional universe they've set this in, it might be slightly more accurate or, you know, there could be something about this particular town, but so far the only, Latinos I remember seeing on this show are the one couple at the beginning of, I want to say the third episode where we first meet Ken Cannon and he's buying their land. And yeah, that they is amazingly well staged. Yeah. <laughs> and move all of Sorry. their furniture out and just bulldoze the house right in front of them. And that's the only Latinos I, re- I can recall seeing on this show, which has crossed my mind before of like this not how Texas looks now. It's a little more of how Texas looked maybe 30, 40 years ago, but even then you would still have seen a lot more of the Latino population in just in in general. So I yeah, I don't love that Tulips having to do all of the heavy lifting here um in in all aspects of things, but We'll we'll see what they do with it, um, and and if it gets explained away in any way, shape, or form, which it might, it might. I mean, I've I've literally been counting, right? Like a couple of like the prostitutes are Latina, like the housekeeper of the motel is Latina. There's a couple in the beginning of the series, and I think that is literally it that we've seen so far. None of the church parishioners, and I don't know if it's because there's a Catholic church that people are going to, but like. There's just there's just nobody. And lots of Latinos are are evangelical and Protestant, and it should 
be that way either. And now that you're actually listening, it's like, oh, it's a housekeeper and some sex workers. That's just yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I want to say, there's way too many sex workers for a town that small. If it's, like, really a small town, that's a hell of a lot yeah. of people. Sadly, this is the thing that I noticed. I'm like, there's a lot. I had wondered about that too, actually. It seemed like it was a lot of people. I don't know if maybe this is a destination for, like, oil field people from around the region or something like that. Like, maybe it's not, maybe it's a significant industry in the town, so to speak. Like, maybe Anvil is a place where people have a meat refinery and the other industry that people travel to is there as a brothel. But yeah, well, well, between that and, and the copious amounts of drugs, like maybe they're, the two are are connected. Oh my god! And guns. Yeah. Gonna, though, the arsenal. No, 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 that's normal Texas. The <laughs> amount of guns is normal Texas. That's not anything unusual. Come on now, get it right. We, we know there's lax laws when uh, two angels can go and get a full arsenal, and no one asks. It's actually True. now that I'm thinking about it. I lived for I lived for three years in the heroin capital of, of New England, and it served exactly that purpose. It was that like it wasn't the 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 amount the amount of of dr- drugs and sex workers in the area was not supporting necessarily that population so much as like people knew what you went to Willamantic, Connecticut for. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> So I can see that as sort of like an like an external headcanon hand wave for why there are so many sex workers and so many drugs in this little town. But yeah, no, I think that works. And we also we know like the mayor, who is far too bashful to be believable to me as a mayor of a city, even of the size of Anvil, um, is like we don't have any industry going on. Like there isn't. I mean, obviously, like you literally have a town boss who's, you know, King Cannon, everybody lives in fear of him, which is interesting because he wavers between being creepy and being scary. Like, he's not always scary. Sometimes he's just weird and creepy. But, um, but you know, there really, there isn't, there isn't that much there yet. So it makes sense that these other areas would have filled in, like, as a, you know, source of money. I think there's, like, one restaurant in the town that we know of so far, for example. Um, and that's really it. I, the, kind of, the confrontation between Jesse and Tim Cannon in the most recent episode over him trying to be, trying to get the uh, I mean the, the, I'm sorry not just between the mayor and Tim Cannon with Tim Cannon kissing in his uh, suitcase it's, it's so over the top but it also just hammers home to me like you know the the mayor is trying to think of alternatives to things being the way they are. And, of course, King Cannon is in charge, so he wants things to be exactly the way they already are. And I think that that's going to be a, big, a major theme of the show in terms of the town at large. It's like, what is the direction that the town is supposed to be going in? And are they going to have green energy, or are they going to kill cows and have sinkholes open up in the middle of the earth regularly to, like, kill people? Yeah, I love I that, that scene of the meeting. The, the meeting oh, of... And of I, and, can can Cannon just his response of just be like look away or like don't look at me as he's pissing into the the briefcase? Because like if you're gonna piss on a guy's suitcase, you don't go and say like oh don't look at my dick. Like you have to own that moment. So the fact that King Cannon is like don't look at me as I piss on your suitcase is what makes it be like pathetic and not just 
insane. Yeah, there's something to that, like, that small moment that adds to that whole scene where you're like, okay, it just went from this, like, it just, it changed a lot of it, and I I love it, of just him, like, stop staring at me. You can see the mayor, like, look, and then kind of turn away, and, like, look a little bit, and turning away, and it took, like, it, it made, it made the moment comedic. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope that the show talks about the city growth issue as a, as a, I mean, I'm obviously geeky about that kind of conversation. And like, you want to talk about urban planning and development in your TV show, sign me up daredevil and potentially preacher. Um, I know that not everybody's going to be looking forward for having that be more in the show, but for me, that's a plus for sure. And we another weird little, ki- I was say another weird little character beat that I, I might've been the only one who noticed was Ken Cannon's entire conversation with Jesse when Jesse was like, no, come to church tomorrow. Like I'll, I'll make it up to you. I promise. Was they were, Ken Cannon was recreating the entire last stand of the Alamo Uh as it was when it fell. Like it was just a really weird, I mean, like it's actually recreating where everyone's dead bodies were found when the Alamo fell and Santa Ana's army came rushing in. Like it was just a really weird thing. And then Jesse's correcting him on like the finer points of this particular history, which every kid in Texas learns, especially our seventh grade history classes, all Texas history. So we all learn about the battle of the Alamo and everything that went on. Anyway, so, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're in Texas, like you knew it, but that's what I mean. I, I would assume that painting a miniature reproduction of, of the Alamo with all the soldiers and whatnot is a normal activity in Texas. Like, if, like, you told me that, like, everybody in your block's dad did that, I'd be like, yes, I believe you. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is, that is not actually normal. It's a little bit Aww. weird. Um, okay. But it's a little bit weird in the way that, like, it would be a little bit weird for somebody in any other part of the country to do a recreation to do like a, a miniature model recreation of a world war two battle or a civil war battle. Like it's just, it's just odd enough. And it's very accurate in that if someone's going to choose to do this, it's probably going to be Texas history and the Alamo's a big one. Uh, so the choice is probably accurate, but it's still a slightly weird thing to do of like recreating famous battle in in the history of things. I actually got a question for Kaylin. Uh, like you might not remember it, but was there anything they were talking about that Jesse was correcting him of where people were like any of that significant that you can think of? There was like what Davy Crockett was the one that he was like, no, he was actually in this was the no, one that, Bowie. Oh, Bowie. That was it. Yeah. It was Bowie. Uh-huh. Uh, it was it wasn't Crockett. It was Bowie. Um, I don't think significant other than he was like he was saying, no, you know, this guy, I don't remember who it was, but this guy followed Bowie to this area. And he was like, no, Bowie was found in the church. And I mean, that's only significant in that um, the only survivors of the Alamo were um, it was. Susanna Davis, I think, was the – it's Susanna something. I'm pretty sure it's Susanna Davis was the most famous survivor 
uh, because she was the wife of one of the generals. Is so it was Susanna Davis and a couple of Hispanic maids, or actually they would have been more native. They would have actually been Latina and Mexican. Uh, so they would have actually been part of the native Texas population. So there were a couple of of Latina women and uh, Susanna Davis and I think one more and then five or six children. And they were, they were in the church and that was where they put them was they, they walled, they boxed them in in one cabinet in the church to try and save them. And that's where Bowie was found was defending that particular part of the church was to try and keep them from, from being killed. And then they were taken captive by Santa Ana and, um, Susanna actually wrote a book about it later, but that would have been the only significance that I can think of. Because the only thing I could think of is that, you know, clearly um, Ken Cannon had like some like love for David Bowie and that um, Jim Bowie, Bowie, sorry. And that, uh, and that, don't bring his statement. Yep, sorry. Uh, that that uh, Jesse kept on referencing. No, he was in the, and it was kind of a hint to Ken Cannon that he needs to come to church. Like it was a way to get him to show up the next day. Like there, I feel like there was significance in like that correction. It it could be. I mean, it could be. You know, something on the part of the the writers to to do that. But I don't think there was any particular historical significance out of it. And I have a feeling, uh, Alana's next topic you want to talk about uh, the awesome Dominic Cooper, who is uh, filling in the main character. Wow. wow. Yes, actually. Yeah. I, so it's interesting we haven't brought him up yet. Um, you know, the, Dominic Cooper. I loved him on Agent Carter. I just thought he was hilarious and perfect all the damn time. Um, and I actually didn't realize that this was him when I first began watching the episode. I didn't recognize, didn't catch it. I, you know, I think we're talking about him a lot less because it's, I don't know, the other, Cassidy and, and Tulip are just so magnetic all the damn time. I, I think he'll probably come into this role more, but I think he's done a good job. What, what do you guys think? I it, When I first saw him, it threw me because he looked so different than my mental image of Jesse. That, it, that I was like, is this even going to work, or is it going to be too distracting? But I and I feel like he is taking the character that that if any actor is taking the character away from the comic in a way that is necessary for it to be a TV show, because I feel like the comic very often looked at Jesse from pretty far outside of himself even though he was the you know the the main character that preacher the tv show is actually much more inside his head and that dominic cooper is making that possible and he brings a a kindness to the character that that i think is really productive because we do want to see um, we 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 want to see the qualities that that make the town sort of bear with him. 
Uh, I really like. Sorry. Yeah. No. Um. Uh, just and that. Um. That I think that too often you see characters like that and they're just so corrupt and such a mess that you're like, why doesn't the town just throw the, throw them out? But mm-hmm. I think that that he does a good job of portraying why the town puts up with him. Like how he's just good enough at his job that that they're like, well, you know, we could do worse. I like this having the sermons from him. You know, the early sermons, which are so freaking incompetent. Wow. Um, and, you know, he, he, his, like, thesis statement in them changes over time. Um he doesn't even he's he's making a completely different argument and and appeal in the later ones and i think he acts that very well so the thing i i really like about him is that one i mean i think that the acting was well, not really one so the acting that he's done i think is fantastic and that you can see him kind of working through how to be a preacher um and slowly getting better, like, as the show's going on. Um, like, he comes off as believable as this guy who used to be a really shitty preacher. And now he's kind of got his second wind. And he's kind of coming into his own, finally. Like, it, there's his portrayal of it seems very realistic. Like, there's, you know, you can feel like he's growing every episode and, and you know, getting... Uh, getting more comfortable with things so um and the other is like i think he really comes off as believable of like why these people would be into him and and want him around as their preacher like he just he still has some um draw um that that even though he's not a good preacher he you, you can see why especially the women would dig him there's an, there's yeah. an earnest yeah. quality that it, like yeah. that's that's the thing like there's a really earnest quality to him like you can tell he wants to do this and he's trying and he's trying very genuinely and it's it's almost and in some aspects this this earnestness shows up in an almost boyish way like a child and you see it a little bit more in his interactions with um what is her name the woman with the three kids who helps out at the church and then Amy. yeah like I, Amy thank you um yeah so you see it a little more in his inter- what is it is it Emily, is it Emily? Did you oh, look I it up it yeah it's Emily um according to IMDb it's Emily uh, it could be okay. it could be Amy. I don't recall her name showing up very often in the show, which is a little weird. But you see it almost more in his interactions with her, where he's like, like in this latest one, where he's like, no, like we'll go get a television and we'll do a raffle, and she's like, what is this gonna do? And he's just he's very earnest in it, like no, it's almost this childlike boy boyish quality about it of like, no, we can do this, like that's how we're gonna do it, and it's it's very genuinely enthusiastic in a way. Yeah, he, and then at the same time... Person. Yeah, I was going to say, and then he grabs the with the band-aid from behind her ear. Like, a, uh-huh. there's a great switch between those two things, where he goes from one to the other, and they're both very believable. 
Yeah, he manipulates her without the voice of God consistently and is terrible to her in every way. Like, it's just really sad. I think it's, you know, important to show, like, how people use their role in their town as, a, you know, as a, as a figure and, and has somebody who's handsome, like, to manipulate her because she completely does it all, you know. I, I do like the moment she calls him on his shit in the pilot. She says, you were never really here in the first place. So what difference should your leaving mean? And I was like, damn, that's so well said. She takes it all back later. Um, it's really, you know, I, 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 him playing her like that is hard, but it, it's well done. It's very well done. And it's the same thing that Tulip does to Jesse on a regular basis. Like they both use something about their history or something about the relationship they have with this person. Like Tulip does it to Jesse. Jesse does it to Emily. Um, Emily does it to the mayor to some extent. And it's, it's very realistic. Like people do this to other people sometimes without realizing they do it. And sometimes purposely doing it um, just by virtue of relationship they have with people. So it's, it's interesting to see, to see it kind of go around, not necessarily in a circle, but to see all people, to see a lot of different people doing that particular thing. Because again, Mm -hmm. it's, what Sarah was saying earlier about like the moral ambiguity of a lot of things in this show of like, no, there's, you know, Emily who's getting manipulated by Jesse in this and a lot of things and getting suckered into a lot of stuff. She wouldn't look like that. You don't really get the impression she would want to do. And then she turns around and does it to, to someone else. So there's, there's sort of the thing like, no, nobody in this is really going to be perfect. They're all going to be people and it's really interesting how the show likes to likes to explore that one and keep things ambiguous and make people actually be people, which is to say neither good nor bad, but you know, good or bad depending on the thing that they're doing at the time and what their own motives are. Yeah. While we're talking about actors, I do want to just say that the child actors on this show are perfect. I mean, they cast one of my favorite child actors as the kid in the pilot, um, and the the kids actually all the the kids the, the one who's talking about his 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 dad being abusive, and then the kids who uh, Tulip interacts with, like all the child actors on this show are just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's no one on the show yet that I thought has been horrible or distracting like even the kids who usually can be are are fine like i think everyone's been top notch uh, if you know if you wanted to give an award for cast like right now they would be up like there's no weak spot mm-hmm. out of anything i think everyone's really solid in their roles and and are making their characters their own so i I gotta give the show like massive credit on that. They've they've done wonderful jobs with all that. And I wonder who the musical director is because the music choices have been excellent. I, I when I, I knew that at some point they would have to play the Johnny Cash cover of Rusty Cage, and um, mm-hmm. I, I was edified by that. Uh, but I feel like all the song choices have been really strong. Um, and ha- sometimes I think that when shows are set in 
and I'm going to say the South, even though Texas isn't the South in the same way that the South is the South, but I think this is true of how media treats the entire part of the country that is like Virginia and below, regardless of where it's oriented. Um, music gets chosen in a way that's almost like mocking and ironic and is not as funny as it thinks it is. Uh, and I think that this show has done a good job of like choosing, you know, country appropriate music um, and gospel music and using it in interesting ways. I would be great to finally, I don't know, if we could get some Otenya around here one of these days, it would be nice if they actually had any Chicano characters and stuff. But anyway, but yeah, the, the music has been, has been really, really fun. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people find themselves downloading things that they may not have listened to before. Was that in the second episode? I think it, I think yeah. it was in the second episode. I think it was. I was going to say, as a Texas person, the only thing I feel like it's missing is either some Willie Nelson or some Stevie Ray Vaughan. Neither of those mm. have made an appearance yet. And uh, I feel like they kind of should. Either that or we need bet, some good mariachi happening in there somewhere. Yeah, totally. I bet they will. It's only four episodes in. I mean... If anybody doesn't know the Johnny Cash cover of Rusty Cage, like just go listen to it right now. It's amazing, amazing relic of the '90s. When this well, not right now because they're listening to the show. True. Okay. Immediately after. after. Oh, do anybody have any informed thoughts around the whole Starbucks mega church encroaching on the local parishioners' uh, local church situation conflict that the story sets up? I don't have any insights other than to say that I hear this is a real issue in the real world. Well, it's definitely a real issue. I don't, I mean, it's been such a long time since I read the comics. I don't remember that being part of the comics. Was it Sarah? Do you remember? I, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it isn't, but I, uh, I, I, I've only reread the first one. So, you know, but I don't recall it being a thing. I do know um, because I have a substantial number of friends who who unironically refer to themselves as the Christian left um, <laughs> that this is an issue and it's kind of a scary thing because a lot of those big mega churches um, get a lot of money out of their parishioners and also are responsible for a sort of homogenizing effect. And I, I know people who could give a much better rundown of that. But, yeah, it is a real thing. And certainly um, for a show that is so fascinated with religion and moral ambiguity, it just seems sort of a perfect fit of something to bring in. So I'm going to totally piggyback on, on what you just said about the, the – and the money is a big aspect of it, and that's part of what's really scary. But the thing that I think is going to be most interesting here is the homogenization aspect because what churches do in small towns is create – they create a place for community. So the small towns have it sort of by virtue of being – small towns, you know, you can't really escape it. You run into the same people in the grocery store and picking up your kids from school and, you know, the two restaurants that you have and, you know, you see the same people over and over. But church 
is where the community actually really happens in a way because that's the place people will actually sit and talk and discuss and meet up and they'll, you know, their families will meet up and there'll be that kind of, I mean, there's, there's backyard barbecues and some small get togethers and, you know, somebody will have do something on the block, but, but church is kind of the focus of your community in a small town in that way. And in a place that's big enough to have two churches, you know, maybe one Catholic and one Protestant or one, you know, one Pentecostal and one sort of universal, you know, Protestant church or, or something like that, that there, um, there really does tend to be like that, that is your community and that's your more focused community. And those are the people that you, you do activities with, you really get to know, and that's, that's your friend group. And that's, the people you raise your kids with and that's the person you call on a Saturday night when something comes up and you need somebody to come watch your kids at the last second or, you know, one kid falls off the stairs and you got to take one to the hospital and who's going to watch my other two kids? Oh, it's so-and-so across the street who I go to church with. And that's the kind of, that's the basis of community. So the thing that the mega churches are so, that makes them so scary is they eliminate that sense of community. Like they're just too big. It's like going to a really big high school. You're not going to know these people. You're not going to have these kind of interactions with them. It's just going to be too big and you're going to lose that sense of actual relationships and building that community just simply by virtue of the size of it. Like you cannot know everybody in a church that big. And I remember growing up in a small town outside of Dallas for a while um, earlier, a little bit before middle school and driving by the church on the rock outside of, and it's sort of the first big church that, that happened and certainly the first one in that area. And it was, it was huge. Like you could see it for miles in Texas. You can see a lot of things for miles, but it really was on the top of the, like cliff area outside of Dallas and you could see it for miles and it was it was huge it was and it really recalled a football stadium which is sort of the other big religion in Texas is football. and so the fact that this thing kind of looked like a stadium and it was a church it and it had a lot of connotations and I remember even as a kid thinking that was really weird of like that's not a church that's that's a stadium like that's a big gathering place for a lot of people and church just shouldn't be that it it felt very anathema to what a church should be in in my head when I was like 10 and I think that's why a lot of these these mega churches are so scary to a lot of people is you really lose that particular sense and it'll be interesting to see what the show does with that because they are using the the church and and Jesse's church as kind of that sense of community. Like that's why he wants to get the people back in there. That's why he wants to get Ken Cannon involved is to recreate that sense of community to bring the town back together Uh in a way. So that I think they're going to use that aspect of it in, in the way that, that could be, that could be really interesting, but that's, that's what I think of with, the whole mega church thing is like, yes, the money aspect is, is really scary, but 
it, a lot of it is that community, and we're seeing, you know, a lot more and more people are talking about. And in in circles that don't have anything to do with religion, it's you know the mom and pop stores are getting bought out by the big box stores, and you know corporate brands are taking over for for smaller things and and more local brands, and it's it's that kind of same idea of like you lose your sense of community and your your like minded like your place to find like minded people just by the sheer fact of it's so huge. Yeah. And especially because the show um, draws so much attention to those scenes where Jesse has this personal relationship with the members of his congregation and that that's the part, one, the part of his job that he's best at and two, um, the thing that the town really seems to need from him much more much more than they need the sermons, they need to have that person there to counsel them, uh, even though he frequently gives terrible advice. He gives terrible advice well, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, the first real casualty of his superpower is somebody who he has given terrible advice to and it's going I don't know is it is it bad advice metaphor like wrong on a metaphorical scale yeah yeah I think that's good things could be interesting if they do the mega church route and basically have him kind of going up against them is the fact that you literally need the word of God to compete with a mega church like that's that's what it's saying. Like you actually need uh, the voice of God to compete against uh, what is theatrics and show, which is a hell of a statement. Yeah, and pretty gutsy yeah. if they make it. Um, I mean, I don't think you'll find a lot of people will publicly say like that they think mega churches are like the way of the future. It's it's that people, there's a convenience, I think, to everything being in one place. I don't know. It it also seems like it's a pretty easy thing to beat up on, frankly, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Maybe. Oh, it's definitely an easy thing to beat up on. I beat up on it quite often. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's also, I I just said like uh, a second second ago, like to me, it's a very Christian thing. It's a very evangelical. It's a very evangelical Christian thing, not specifically Christian, and not even really Protestant. I think it's a very, it's a very evangelical idea of like we must we must bring the word of God to as many people as we possibly can in whatever way we can. That's a very evangelical idea. Whereas churches that aren't necessarily evangelical but are still, I mean, like. Baptist churches tend to to go that way, but like Methodist, um, you know, Pentecostal is more tent revival thing. It's like bringing the word of God to people where they are. So even that is still a small community thing. But like the the idea of like bringing it to masses at a time is a very evangelical idea and not necessarily Mm. specifically Christian, but a very specific type of. Christianity, because that's actually one of the requirements. That's one of the things that you have to do as an evangelical Christian is is um, preach isn't the right word, but 
um, proselytize. Yeah, proselytize, like minister to to people, to bring the word of God to people. And so, you know, if you if you can get ten thousand people to show up at your church, or you know, a hundred thousand to watch you on TV, then you have done a better job as an evangelical Christian than someone who is creating a community church of God on the corner with their own group of of people. So God, I wish my friend Patty was on the phone right now. She'd be schooling us all. She actually knows this. Um, (laughs) From the inside in a way that I feel like none of us do. But, yeah. So what we're saying is we need to do a second show and have her on. That's what I'm hearing. (laughs) She's a professor of Milton. I'll give you her number. Um, (laughs) She'd do it. I'm game. I think we could do that at the end of the season, and we can see if uh, yeah, do it at the end of the season. That would be awesome. I'd be up for that. See if we can... I really have to say, cool. like, I did not think I'd be this hooked on the show. And this week, you know, everybody, I was more excited to see the new episode of Preacher than I was to see the new episode of Game of Thrones, and that's weird to me. I don't actually think that Preacher is necessarily going to like reach the heights that Game of Thrones has, but I was more excited to see what was going to happen next on Preacher. And that's quite a shift for me in terms of my cultural consumption priorities. I think the fascinating thing for me is Preacher's Out and the other, there's another comic show that just debuted a couple of weeks ago, Outcast, which is another religious show. Um, that one was done by Robert Kirkman, who does The Walking Dead, and it's on Cinemax. And Outcast is more like The Exorcist, but there's still a lot about God and angels and demons and stuff like that and that. And then you've got this fall coming out. Uh, Fox is doing a revival of The Exorcist as a television show. I think it's fascinating yeah. that you've got three pretty religious shows all coming out around the same time that there's kind of a conservative backlash happening. Oh, that's interesting. I mean... You have to have a lot of people willing to challenge religious institutions to have preacher on the air in the first place. I mean, yeah, yeah. There was I think a, if the show was wide profile, there would be people trying to ban it or something. Yeah, Westboro would be all over this one. But the thing that I actually think was was fascinating. So I, there was an article I found that was, or maybe you sent it to me that uh, that had. Um, uh, Garth Ennis was was kind of talking about the show a little bit, and he said that they actually didn't get a lot of protests when the comic was first printed. Like, not many people mm-hmm. paid too much attention to it, which I'm, I actually will say I'm a little shocked that the Million Moms or someone else isn't protesting it and going completely batshit insane about either of the shows, but especially Preacher. Well, it sounds like we're probably ready to wrap up for the evening and we'll rejoin to discuss the finale when it comes out. I have literally one note that I bolded that I did not get to. (laughs) I will just say right now and then turn it over to you guys for your final words. Uh, Mine is that King Cannon's first name is Odin and Odin is the pagan god of knowledge and he's the father. He's 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 the father of the gods and if that's not a symbol then I don't know what is. He was also Rorschach, which was also the knowledge person in Watchmen. We mentioned, I, we, 
<laughs> we mentioned that. We mentioned the Rorschachness. So freaking crazy. Oh, sorry. Um, who's next? Sarah, your your final thoughts on the show. My final thoughts, other than the fact that for the past, for literally 20 years, I've been trying to figure out the significance of the town name Anvil, which sounds like, well, like an anvil, either a thing right? that, thing for, that, that either a thing that things are forged on or the thing that falls out of the sky in cartoons, and is probably both. Um, yeah, <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah, so I think, and I think that that kind of like slippery metaphor um, is really what both the comic and the show are about. I hope that people are revisiting the comic and not stopping after book one because I promise you that stopping after book one is like stopping after the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, okay. <laughs> like, Point made. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And don't think I had that point like, like like that was totally in my pocket on the way in. Um, that it's fascinating mm-hmm. how different they are and how necessarily different they are. Um, and how I feel like this is going to be very much of its time in the way that Preacher is the way it is is such a '90s text, and I think that that might be a, a part of it too. Um, but it's it's I'm really pleased to have an adaptation of something I love becoming something that I love on its own merits. And that's Aww. my thoughts. So. <laughs> and Galen, for you up up to you next. So my my final thoughts are um I really like a lot of the things that the show is doing and a lot of the things that I think it might look to explore. And um, it feels it feels really grounded as you know, as I don't get pulled out of my of the Texas setting to accents or location or anything like that very much. So I appreciate that. <laughs> there's, there's you know nothing nothing weird that throws me out of it, which I do like. And it's doing a lot of really interesting things. So I I will definitely be watching to see where this one goes because. I think it's going to go some really neat places. And my final thoughts. Um, I'm, I'm really impressed with the show. You know, the, the first three episodes, I was kind of apprehensive just because I thought it deviated so much for the comics. Um, yet there's so much at the same time that, that it really, it nails and improves. Um, and it's really at the, this fourth episode where it finally hit that they, are they're similar like you could say this is based on or adapted from it's not the same thing and they both are standing on their own and the comics are very much a product of the 90s and uh entertainment of that time um and then this is just a whole other thing um and they they both work really really well and i'm kind of i'm looking forward to seeing where this goes uh for the rest of the season and hopefully it gets renewed for for more because uh, it's unique. We'll, we'll, we'll give it that. Um, it, there's a comic-based television show or even movie that, that is like this. So um, I, props to everyone. And, you know, I, I went in very um, hoping for the best, expecting the worst, and it's looking like the best. So um, bravo all around. Um, and I think that's going to 
wrapping us up. But before we go, Sarah, if you want to plug some stuff where people can find you, uh, or if you want to plug your your blog and of course Twitter and all that other stuff, but floor is yours. Okay, um, if you are at all interested in figure skating or gymnastics or you are about to watch, watch the Olympics and you have no idea what's going on, uh, my blog is The Finer Sports, all one word, .sportsblog.com. I also have a Tumblr with the same name, and I'm Pazasha, which is P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-P on Twitter. Um, and occasionally I even manage to talk about comics in those venues. Although it's really a lot of ice skating and gymnastics. That's what I got. <laughs> okay, Kaylin shaking her head at it. She's got nothing to plug. Uh, <laughs> my Twitter my Twitter account is B L A N A underscore Brooklyn. Like the city. Uh, and I'm and very happy that Elon Sarah, Brooklyn. Yeah. I'm very happy that Sarah uh said her Twitter uh handle because I would have totally pronounced it wrong. Uh, and come off like an idiot. So it's French. I know it's <laughs> French. I, however, <laughs> do not take French, and am not not educated like that. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, you can catch this on demand. It'll be up on iTunes and Stitcher. You know, probably like an hour or so after this wraps up. Of course, we're going to download it and upload it onto SoundCloud, and you can listen to there. And of course, we'll post it graphicpolicy.com where you can check out the news every single day uh, if you want to listen to it again you'll be able to catch it there take it on the go or we encourage you to share it with folks uh, and if you've made it this far and you're coming from iTunes please go and vote for us and give us a nice whatever five star rating whatever they do over there uh, help us out greatly uh, but as always thank you for listening uh, we're much, much appreciated. Uh, we're going to be off next week, but we will be back the week after that uh, with a topic to be determined. So, uh, you know, pay attention oh, on Blog Talk Radio. Of, if, the first, if, if it's the first weekend, if it's the first week of July, it is. then I believe we'll be talking uh, with um, Magdalena about uh, Kim and Kim, her new comic yes, the, at Black Mask. I was about to say, yeah, yep, yeah, I had a brain fart and totally forgot about that. So thank you. Yes, we will actually have a guest. Mm-hmm. That will be the first week of July. Um, I don't know. Do we have a day specifically yet? Definitely not the 4th. I but... think it's the 6th. I think it's the 6th. July 6th, the oh. Thursday. New Comic Book Day. We will be talking comics on New Comic Book Day. Um, so, yeah, join us the 6th. We'll have uh, it up on to Blog Talk Radio so you can go and set a reminder. Uh, and then, of course, we'll be posting about it the week of uh, to remind you on graphicpolicy.com. So thanks for listening, as always, and thank you for our, uh, to our guests for joining us. So until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.